Hello and welcome to another episode of Livewire's Rules of Investing. I'm your host and editor at Livewire, Patrick Polk. Today's guest is Jim Mellon, author of the new book, Juvenescence, Investing in the Age of Longevity. In it, he and his co-author, Al Chalabi, discuss the science and investment opportunities in the field of longevity and health span extension. In Australia, life expectancy at birth is about 82 years. Jim and Al suggest that based on current and existing technology and therapies, we should see life expectancy increase to more like 110 to 120 years old over the next 20 to 30 years. It's not just the length of our lives, but the quality of life in our later years that should increase significantly. Obviously, this has huge implication for investors, economists, and the wider population, which we'll discuss in this episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Jim. It's great to have you on, and of course, as our first international guest. Now, um, I know you're an author, a speaker, a business person, and an investor. But for much of our Australian audience, they might not uh, be familiar with your background. Just so they can understand a bit better, could you tell us a little bit about your career and some of the the achievements you've had in the past? Well, there have been plenty of failures along with a, a few a few achievements. But the uh, I started work as a fund manager in uh, Asia, and then I moved to San Francisco and worked in the early what we would think of as the early technology area, the sort of Bill Gates era. Uh, Steve Jobs and the early days of Apple um, as an investor, investment manager for British investors investing into U.S. tech, and that was a great, um, a great time. Uh, uh, I didn't recognize the, uh, the the world changing events that were going on around me because you don't really when you're immersed in a, a kind of uh, activity like that. But now looking back at it back at it, I was very, very lucky to be part of that. Anyway, I then went back to Asia, set up my own uh, emerging market fund management business, which is still going, uh, and then diversified into a variety of other stuff, including mining. So we had some mining investments here in Australia. BC Iron was one of them. We still are a a large shareholder in Venturex, and we've uh, we started a uranium company, which was listed on the London stock market. And I got into German property, which is my main interest investment-wise at the moment. But German property is about as exciting as watching paint dry. So um, I had to find something else to do. And that was biotech. And 10 years ago, I teamed up with my two partners in biotech, Greg Bailey and Deck Dugan. And we've created a couple of companies. One is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And then we realized that there was a real move afoot in biotech towards the uh, science of juvenescence, which is the science of longevity, uh, and that the science was catching up with the aspiration in that area. And uh, so I did what I normally do uh, to write a book around the the subject, order my thoughts, meet the the people who are key to this process. Uh, And the book came out towards the end of last year, and we've now established our company, which is why I'm here um, in the UBS offices talking to institutional investors about our company and um, that company is uh, a drug development company focused on drugs that are, are likely to extend life but also very importantly life likely to extend what they call health span which is the uh, the you know the good health towards the end of your life we want people to be welderly and not to be elderly in a kind of in a brief nutshell so that's my trajectory 
Um, and I've never been more interested or engaged by anything. It's partly out of self-interest because obviously we're all getting older, but particularly me. And um, so I want to get uh, some benefit from this. Um, but equally, I've been on many bandwagons in my life. I've never started one. I've been a fairly competent plagiarist. Um, but this is a bandwagon on which I'm having a little uh, effect in terms of pushing it along. And uh, that's a really exciting place to be. Yeah, most definitely. It's certainly an idea that's beginning to rise to prominence. And we're going to discuss juvenescence and, and longevity in quite a bit of detail. But before we jump into that, I just wanted to talk a little bit about big picture stuff. Um, I know you, you kind of came to, to prominence uh, on the back of your 2005 book, Wake Up, Survive and Prosper in the Coming, ec coming Economic Turmoil. Um, which in, in a sense, I guess, predicted the, the GFC in, in a fair bit of detail, actually. So I'm curious, what was it that you saw that gave you such conviction in your view that the GFC was coming? Um, I think it was the complacency over optimism, uh, you know, this time it's different type attitude that prevailed uh, in those days leading up to 2008 and the and the or the end of 2007 and the and the crash, um, and I think it, it basically uh, my view was based on just a long observation of cycles. The fact I've been a fund manager for so long, have had uh, you know some pretty bad scares in my time when markets have collapsed. I mean, I remember I was very young then, uh, coming back to my flat in London, and uh, the in 1987 the Dow fell by 25% in one day, and um, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, you know, because I'd been brought up in this uh, school that, which is a bit similar to what's happening today, that markets only went one way, and that was upwards. And uh, so those sort of scares gave me the, um, uh, you, you know, the experience to know that 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 all wasn't well, that we were building up to something fairly serious. And so we did. We wrote about the U.S. housing. Uh, bubble, which it was, the lack of certification, proper certification of mortgage app app applicants, uh, the build-up of debt, the over-leverage of the investment banks. And, uh, you know, I remember I was in uh, Bear Stearns' office on the day when it went, uh, it went uh, <laughs> on its way to administration, because my brother-in-law worked there, and uh, I was in New York with him. Um, so all formative stuff, but, you know, we have to look forward and not backwards. And I do feel that today there was a. I talked to, uh, to one of Michael's friends earlier on, uh, who was describing the tech uh, bubble as a parabola, which is now peaked and is going the other way. And I completely agree with that person. I think we're right at the beginning of a serious bear market in tech. Tech has driven the markets very much in the last few years, and as you probably know, 70% of the S&P's performance in the last five years has come from just 10 stocks, most of which are tech, uh, and they're over-owned, over-institutionalized uh, at a time when their business models, not all of them, but some of them are under threat, and uh, when governments are gunning for them. So if you are a shareholder in tech stocks, I'd be very wary at the moment. So when you say tech stocks, you're talking about what's commonly called the FANG stocks, I take it? Your Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Apple, etc. Is that, is that the kinds of stocks you're talking about at the big end of town? Yes, yeah, absolutely, Patrick. I mean, the, Facebook is the obvious example, as we all know. Its business model is kind of crumbling. 
uh, it's got a big cash balance which I assume governments are eyeing uh, enviously uh, and it's done some pretty bad stuff and yet its arrogant attitude uh, prevails um, and uh, I would have thought uh, and I was a little bit premature on this but it's certainly coming true now that uh, Facebook's shares will at least halve uh, and possibly in 10 years time Facebook won't exist at least uh, as we know it today uh, and you know that sort of use of technology to my mind is uh, a time wasters charter for two billion people um, it's a frivolous use of technology I'm much much more interested in the application of what is in this age of technological acceleration of stuff that does good for mankind which is why I'm in the biotech and juvenescence space because there is no doubt that not only is every person on the planet a potential customer but that it's going to do a hell of a lot more good more good for humanity than uh, you know uh, pictures of cats and uh, and um, you know my holiday in Bali or whatever the, the, the features of Facebook are so uh, I I, I think the days of those internet platforms, bearing in mind they only just started 10 or 20 years ago, are, are numbered as they currently are. Yes, well, certainly uh, a good thing, and I wholeheartedly agree with you on the uh, on the value of those services. But um, look, let's talk a little bit about what you were uh, alluding to there in juvenescence. Um, I know it's your, your your big passion, so I know the the common perception, and certainly it's one that I held myself until a few years ago, is that human lifespans are probably limited to around 110 to 120 years at the at the maximum. Can you explain? Just briefly, what are some of the things that have changed or are changing and why it's brought this limit into question? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I want to say that my assertion or the assertion of Al Chalabi, my co-author and myself in this book, is not that people are going to live to 150, which they well, they might well do, but that the average life expectancy at birth in 20 or 30 years will be 110 to 120, which, you know, is consistent with what many people think of as maximal uh, human lifespan, bearing in mind that the, the oldest recorded person in history uh, who's been properly recorded was Madame Jeanne Calmont. She died at 122 years old in 1997. Um, so we're not saying oh, we're all going to live to 150 or 200 or the sky's the limit. We're saying that given current technology, and by that I mean technology that excludes such amazing stuff as gene editing, or stem cell therapy uh, or organ transplantation from animals into human beings uh, or whole tissue regeneration, all stuff that's here today but, but we're not taking into account in our forecast, that maximal lifespan is going to increase to 110 to 120, sorry, life expectancy at birth is going to increase to 110 to 120. And the things that are driving that are as follows. First of all, the diseases of aging, the, the things that kill most people, 70% of Australians, Brits, Americans die of the same five diseases uh, on a consistent basis, and those are cardiovascular disease number one, cancer number two, and those together account for 50% or more of all deaths around the world. But you've also got respiratory disease, you've got Alzheimer's, and then you've got diabetes, stroke, obesity. Those five diseases kill uh, the 160,000 uh, Australians a year to the extent of 70% and the same in the UK, same in the US. Those diseases, with the exception of Alzheimer's, are being addressed with dramatic effect. And in fact, cancer, 
will become a chronic or curable condition within 10 years as a result of the advances in immunotherapy, early diagnosis and so forth. And cardiovascular disease is falling by 2 to 4% per annum. That's the first thing. So the existing diseases of aging are being addressed with an amazing rapidity that's not well known uh, uh, outside the scientific community, uh, but not well known in the general population. The second and very key important thing is lifestyle changes, notably the cessation of smoking. Smoking takes 14 years on average off people's lives, and if, they, if they're consistent smokers, so why would you do it? Uh, but Australia, amongst other countries, has been at the forefront of taxing cigarettes, uh, educating the young population and others to, to quit smoking, and it's been remarkably successful. At the end of the Second World War, half the adult population in developed world countries smoked today the figure is down to between 12 and 15 percent and that means that cardiovascular disease lung cancer and respiratory disease are going to fall just as a matter of course because there's less a lot less smokers around and that's that's terrifically good news the third thing is that there are drugs out there now or drugs which are in very close to commercial uh implementation uh which will ex do extend human life because they extend animal life and observationally they extend human life those drug would, drugs would include metformin, which has been around for a long time. It's an anti-diabetic drug, uh, and um, that drug has been trialed on millions of people. And the fact is that if you're uh, diabetic with type 2 diabetes and you uh, take this drug, you'll live eight years longer on average than someone who's not diabetic uh, who doesn't take metformin. So observationally, we know this is going to work, and the first trial ever of a an anti-aging compound uh, under the auspices of the FDA in the United States uh, is about to start in metformin, but there's no money in metformin because it's a generic drug, but it's a good thing that that trial is going ahead. Uh, then there's the senolytic drugs, which we're really big on, uh, which basically remove senescent cells from bodies or animals or human beings. Senescent cells cause, even though they're 1% in elderly people, uh, they cause 100% of all the inflammatory disease in old people. The frailty in the old lady who's walking down the street or the guy who's shuffling along, that's because of senescent cells. Those are cells that are somewhere in between healthy functioning and programmed death, which is normal. Our cells die every day in billions, um, and uh, a programmed death is, is normal, but sometimes they get stuck in between that senescence, and that senescence... Uh, grows as you get older and, and in very old people the, the the heavy burden of senescent cells means the heavy burden of inflammatory disease so if you put a senolytic drug as they call them the ones that remove uh, senescent cells into uh, a mouse and you compare it to another mouse that isn't treated the difference is absolutely remarkable the the, the mouse who's been treated looks like a juvenile up to the day that he or she dies typically 35% longer than the average wild-type mouse. And the mouse that um, is not treated uh, has all the characteristics that we associate with the extreme old age, like uh, blindness, deafness, cancer, curvature of the spine, uh, less subcutaneous fat, thinning fur, all that sort of stuff, lack of mobility. Um, and that's due to the treatment of senolytic drugs. Now, these drugs are going into human trials now. We happen to have one. Uh, and uh, they are going to have an absolutely remarkable effect on expanding health span as well as expanding lifespan. And that's just one example of a compound that's in close uh, proximate commercial development. 
we're very lucky to be in the first cohort on the planet where the biological manipulation of uh, our bodies is possible because all the uh, life expectancy expansion that's occurred in the last century has occurred as a result of uh, environmental change. So better sanitation, better nutrition, less accidents at work, we've uh, better infant mortality and of course antibiotics. But now biological manipulation is not just possible, it's happening. Mice, their lifespan can be doubled or more. Uh, the C. elegans earthworm, which is widely studied by scientists looking at longevity, can be expanded by 10 times fruit flies by 20 times and yeast which is another model that's used can be uh, can go from a limited lifespan to immortality so where this is happening still a relatively primitive science this is like the internet in 1995 but you know because every single person on the planet's a potential customer this could be the world's biggest industry which is why uh, we're, I'm spending all my time uh, on this as indeed are my colleagues and we're super super excited about it as, as exciting as all this is, it does sound like it's a it's fairly early stage. So I guess, you know, we're an investing podcast. So I guess my main question is, can we invest in this yet? And if so, where can you find opportunities for it? Well, I mean, uh, obviously our company is not yet public and most of the companies in this area are not yet public, but there's a lot of money going into it. There'll be plenty of public companies, I've got no doubt, in Australia, the UK, the US, the leading centers of excellence in this field in due course. But at the moment, you know, there's a company in the US that's public called Biotime. They've got a very good patent estate in this area. Uh, they're, they're worth having a look at. There's a company that recently went public called Restore Bio that's using rapamycin analogs, which are derivatives of rapamycin. It's an old cancer drug, which definitely has a, a life extending capability, uh, which is now public and they've raised quite a lot of money on their IPO recently. Uh, another company called Unity Biosciences, which has a senolytic drug, which I just described, uh, just filed on Friday to go public in the US. That's, that's worth having a look at. Um, so there are a few companies that are public, but generally speaking, this is something you need to watch out for uh, for future IPOs and future listings, because at the moment, um, there's very little uh, that's available to the general invest investing public. But I can tell you that hopefully by the end of this year, our company, Juvenescence, will be public on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, or the first quarter of next year as a backstop. Um, and uh, so we're, we're racing as quickly as we can because this is a land grab. This is, you know, uh, the, as I said earlier, the sort of dial-up internet era. Um, but as we know, in the last 23 years, everything's changed uh, in the world as a result of the changes in technology. In the next 23 years, who knows? And I just want to point, point out one thing, Patrick, which is that five years ago, I wrote my first book on biotech. It was called cracking the code and at that point hepatitis C wasn't curable today you can take pills and you will be cured of hepatitis C that drug uh, the Gilead Sciences drug has been the best best-selling drug in the history of the world 50 billion dollars in the last five years it's sold you've had um, the development of artificial intelligence which I know is a great big buzzword but we're using it to develop compounds much much more quickly than they could be developed by just using traditional big pharma type means uh, and that is now being applied in the, uh, the, the discovery of new chemical entities um, and being applied very widely. Um, you've got uh, cancer immunotherapy, uh, was didn't exist five years ago, and now cancer immunotherapy for blood cancers like leukemia 
is the standard of care and the, the cure rates are just quite remarkable. And it, it's going to move into solid tumors. And that's why my forecast about cancer becoming a curable or chronic condition in the next um, few years is, uh, is I'm, I feel is very well founded. But most importantly, and your, your, uh, your viewers and yourself will be familiar with CRISPR-Cas9, the gene editing system. It didn't exist five years ago, all right? It didn't exist, and now this is revolutionizing the way in which uh, DNA is being altered, uh, inserted, things are being inserted into DNA, and multi-billion dollar companies are being created around that. Now, the point about that is that five years ago, these things didn't exist. We don't know what's going to happen in the next five years, but it's going to be great, isn't it? I mean, you know, if, if those things happened in the last five years plus more, we're going to get an accelerating trend and there'll be even greater discoveries in the next five years. So who knows what the upside limit is to human lifespan? Uh, but I'm making no assertion beyond 110 and 120. 110 or 120 is quite a lot, though, compared to what people live today because it's like waking up in the morning and having 36 hours ahead of you and rather than having 24 hours. Already everything's going to change in life as a result of that. The societal implications, the uh, economic implications, the investing implications, they're all monumental. That's not part of what I'm discussing here in Australia. But you know that's, a, that's another subject, another separate issue which is going to have a very big effect on all of our lives. The science is here today. This is, this is not uh, a made-up sort of science fiction thing. There are people today who are going to benefit from this. In fact, almost everyone's going to benefit from this science. And it's time that policymakers in Australia, the UK, the US, and other serious countries took note of it because it's going to change everything. So look, wherever there's winners, there's, there's got to be losers as well. So are there any obvious uh, industries or, uh, or areas that you could see actually being uh, negatively affected by extended lifespans? I suppose probably uh, annuities is something that comes to mind for, for me, but is there anything that you would identify as being possibly uh, a major loser from this trend? That's an excellent question, because yes, there are. Um, let me put it this way. Uh, the finance industry is going to be severely disrupted. You talked about annuities, pension providers. There's no no company, no country that can support the retirement age of 65, which is the kind of you know general retirement age in the developed world at the moment. This is not possible. If people live to 110 or 120, they're going to have to be working till they're 85 to 90 at the very least. So that is going to be one industry that's going to be disrupted. You've also got the life insurance industry and life insurance is going to be very severely disrupted. But then look, let's look at patterns of consumption. What do older people like to do and what do younger people like to do? Well, younger people like to go to nightclubs and bars. I would actually be short those kind of industries. I mean, this is in a broad sense. And for the last few years, I've been so positive on the cruise industry because it's what, you know, uh, the older folk like to do. And, uh, you know, the even better reason to be bullish on the cruise industry which is only going to go one way, which is upwards, is that you know uh, people with parents who are getting on can just put them on the boat for a couple of years <laughs> and they'll get medical care, go around the world and, and occasionally dial in. But you know, like basically, it's a form of kind of institutionalized care on the water. And um, so that you know, companies like uh, Carnival or Royal Norwegian or all those sort of companies, I think, have got a, a great future um, ahead of them. Uh, and then other industries that are going to be really disrupted include the healthcare industry because if people live in a healthy state f 
for much longer, in other words, towards the end of their lives, are not for the last 10 years suffering from chronic disease and decrepitude, but are robust. That will change the pattern of healthcare consumption. Uh, social care will become much more important, much more highly valued. Empathetic industries uh, or industries that rely on human empathy will be much more uh, uh, valued. But things like being a lawyer or being an accountant or even being a doctor where you'll become a receptionist in front of a big computer, they're going to be disrupted in the opposite way. So everyone needs to start thinking about how is this going to affect my job? How is this going to affect the consumption patterns that I see around me and how can I invest to take advantage of that and one of the best ways of, of doing that is to actually invest in the stuff that's going to keep people alive for much longer because we are going to live a much longer life we cannot rely on pensions or government subventions or all that sort of stuff so we need to be very careful about the investments that we make and we need to take a much longer and more strategic view of what we're investing in so it's an excellent question and uh, you know, I don't have the answers to that, but people should really think much more deeply about the trends that are going on in the world. As someone said to me earlier today, it doesn't really matter what Donald Trump does or the minutiae of trade wars or the price of copper or whatever. The really important thing at the moment is if we do live to 110 or 120, what are the, the macro effects on the world and on us and how does that affect, affect our investing strategy? Yeah, definitely. It certainly requires a, a very different mind frame, doesn't it? Um, look, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the specific technologies because uh, there's a couple in particular that I find absolutely fascinating and I was hope hoping you might be able to explain a little bit for the audience so that they could understand them a little bit better. Um, could you tell us a little bit about NAD Plus and what we, we hope to be able to, to do with it and some of the opportunities that it, it presents? Uh, NAD plus is, uh, comes generally in a white powder, which is why I left my supply at home since I came via um, Singapore on this trip and I didn't want to be executed on the way down to Australia. <laughs> I'm not joking. Uh, it has a very short half-life, so uh, you need to keep on refreshing your supply. If you've got some stashed away in your fridge uh, that you've had for six months, it won't work. So. Um, it, the idea of NAD plus is to boost the activity of the sirtuins, which are a key pathway related to aging. And the sirtuins in turn are supposed to improve mitochondrial health. Mitochondria are the elements of our cells that are the power plants of our cells. And as we get older, they become less efficient. So the idea is that NAD plus creates uh, uh, an improvement in those mitochondria. Um, it's, I would say, one of the least interesting of the areas in biogerontology or juvenescence. And even though the, there was a recent paper that suggested that the, there would be a re reversal of aging effects in the endothelium lining of the arterial walls of our, our cardiac system, I'm not really sure that I regard NAD plus as being the major factor in this. I would say that rapamycin and senolytics are, are much more interesting in that respect. But nonetheless, it's an interesting strategy and it's something that people can buy right now without prescription. So um, there is a company in the US called Elysium and it's got a valuation of over a billion dollars and all it does is sell uh, a, a pill form of NAD plus that, uh, that you get on a monthly basis from in a, in a nice box. 
and they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars to commercialize that. Uh, there is also the great work done by David Sinclair, Australian scientist out of Harvard University, who's a friend uh, in NAD+, and his product NMN is um, being refined for as a prescription product, uh, and hopefully that will be on the market relatively soon. Um, and uh, there's a company called Chromadex, which actually is public, which has the IP on a lot of this stuff, which, uh, which might be an interesting one for people to look at uh, from an investment point of view, because they, they've got the idea. But NAD is, um, as I said, interesting, but not, not the best of the bunch. Okay, fair enough. Well, there's another one, although it's not specific, specific to, to aging or anti-aging, I guess, I think it, there's some really uh, exciting technology happening. And I know it does have some applications in, in, in the anti-aging space. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about CRISPR or CAD9 and about the potential that you see there. Another great question, because CRISPR to me is the greatest invention in medicine in the last hundred years, even greater than antibiotics. And I took myself off, I'm not a scientist by the way, but I took myself off to Boston to a scientific conference three or four weeks ago and sat there listening to this stuff. And I was just blown away by the capacity of what CRISPR could do. So CRISPR was discovered, it's been in nature for billions of years. It's the, the way that bacteria protect themselves against uh, viral, viral intruders. And uh, it was, Funnily enough, it was discovered at the same time by two ladies, uh, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna, in separate research institutions. There are other people involved in this. There's quite a big patent battle going on as to exactly who was first uh, in, in this area, but leave that to one side. The discovery itself is of very great significance because what it allows scientists to do is to very precisely and with increasing precision uh, cut the uh, DNA strands at very specific points and to either remove what you might call bad uh, sequences of DNA or to insert good sequences of DNA in, in a nutshell. Um, and there are several uses of this that are immediately apparent. One is in agriculture to produce what are actually non-GM crops but genetically edited crops. Um, the second is in chemistry, and both in both those areas there's been very rapid advance just in the last five years. The third, of course, is in humans, and the first thing that they're doing uh, with CRISPR is to address what they call orphan diseases. Those are diseases which have less than 200,000 patients worldwide, and there are 7,000 such diseases that normally result from one single gene defect. It's called a monogenic defect. Those diseases would include, ones that people would know, muscular dystrophy, uh, sickle cell anemia, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, the, the, the diseases that carry a very big um, health burden and quite often lead to premature death, uh, for which there are only 400 approved FDA treatments for the 7,000 um, diseases. So it's a very big unmet medical need a lot of those diseases are passed down through familial lines. So, you know, if the if two parents have are carriers of the disease, it's quite likely that their son or daughter is going to have that disease. So, by using CRISPR preconception, ultimately many of these diseases will be edited out of the germline, uh, avoiding 
uh, so basically uh, over time in a kind of evolutionary but man-induced kind of way over time the diseases just won't exist anymore and you know we've had some diseases on this planet for instance smallpox polio which have been eradicated more or less uh, and it's quite possible that the orphan diseases will be eradicated but if you think about longevity uh, you can imagine that people will be engineered to live longer with less disease uh, in a conceptual world and uh, CRISPR-Cas9 where the leaders by the way are in the United States absolutely firmly in the US uh, will be a key element of that but I imagine that uh, in countries with somewhat looser regulations about trial drug trials such as possibly China uh, there are probably experimentations are going on right now to see not not in humans but in animal models to see what could be engineered in or out that's going to be uh, helpful uh, as opposed to uh, unhelpful to to human subjects but this has happened in the last five years I, I do think CRISPR-Cas9 is an absolutely unbelievable invention but there are other forms of gene editing as well uh, such as zinc finger nucleases and talons which also have application um, so watch the space in CRISPR it, it will have longevity effects but you're right at the moment it doesn't it doesn't at the moment excellent well moving on just from the science topics uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the fang stocks that we mentioned earlier um, I know you were publicly short those companies previously um, and obviously they've had a pretty good year up until about I think a month or two ago so has your view changed on those? You kind of alluded that you were still quite negative on them. Could you give us a bit of an update on, on what your feelings are, are on them now? And also just anything that you've learned from seeing those, those short positions move against you? Well, I have lots of positions that move against me, so I'm quite familiar with the, uh, the pain of, of loss. Um, but, you know, luckily other stuff goes well. And um, so, and I don't, because I've been in the business a long time, I don't sort of bet the farm on, on just one thing. But uh, I've always been a bit early in terms of, a bit like in the, the GFC forecast, a bit early in terms of what happens. But I, I think on this, as you know, their gains have been more or less eradicated in many cases in these FANG stocks this year now. So um, I think we're just at the beginning of a very, very serious decline in these companies. On the face of it, they look, well, they don't look cheap. They never have looked cheap. but. You know, Facebook might be on the face of it if you believe that growth trajectory is going to continue at 20 times next year's earnings, which doesn't look too expensive. But the problem is that those earnings are very, very suspect. They're, they're suspect because of three factors. One is fining and the cost of regulation. Because if you think about it, they claim that they're not publishing platforms. They are, sorry, they're not, not publishers, they're just platforms. But now they're going to have to police their platforms as if they were publishers and take responsibility for what goes up on those platforms and that's going to be a very expensive remedy for them very expensive you know many more thousands of people are going to, have to watch what's going on the second is that they work on a network effect the more people who are on it the more valuable those um, platforms are I'm sure that that Facebook is losing people rapidly at the moment um, partly because it was just getting boring anyway and my nieces and nephews who are Onto, into this sort of stuff it is not interested in Facebook anymore um, but the, 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 the third reason is that the advertisers uh, are deserting uh, this platform in a fairly rapid way so you've got three things 
really going against them. One, the costs are rising. The second is the governments are eyeing up their uh, big cash balances and thinking about fining these companies or pen penalizing them in whatever way they can. And the third is that the audience engagement is falling. Um, you know, what new markets can Facebook go into? Uh, China is barred to it. I don't think ever, the Chinese will ever let the Facebook in there. Uh, and the countries in which they're making gains or have made gains, countries like the Philippines and so forth, just don't have the revenue capacity per viewer that the developed markets like Australia or the UK or, or the US um, have. Um, so I would say that, uh, you know, having been somewhat premature in this, just talking to you actually has reinforced my view that we really should be even more short these things. In terms of the, uh, the other ones, I mean, Google is very, very uh, good service. Um, and has a much higher utility value than Facebook. Uh, I still think that the information will become a regulated utility and their return on capital will fall over time. Um, Amazon is public enemy number one uh, uh, for Donald Trump. Not a good position to be in, I'd have thought. And one has to think that governments around the world are looking at it in terms of uh, monopolistic or quasi-monopolistic behavior, even though it's not a monopoly or not in a classical sense of monopoly. Um, and uh, again, Amazon is selling at an infinite PU ratio. The only company, com part of the company that makes any money is the cloud business, as you know. Uh, the, the rest of it is a shareholder funded uh, consumer charity, basically, since they don't make any cash flow out of their their shopping stuff and the idea was that one day they would just stop spending and then the money would just flow in but there's no evidence that Jeff Bezos ever wants to stop spending. Um, I would just be very very careful about all these stocks, they've, they've, they've gone below all their critical uh, moving averages, they, the market generally in the US looks a bit vulnerable to a fall. Um, I, I, I think you know whereas I've had to bear a bit of the pain in this in the last uh, few months of my shorts it's coming right now, and for most people who are not short, maybe now is the time to consider it. Excellent. Look, that's the main part of the interview, but we have uh, three quick questions that we like to do at the end. They're the same with, with every one of our guests. So they're supposed to be a little bit fun. Don't take it too seriously. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> um, so um, one of the key objectives for the podcast is to teach the audience something they hadn't thought about before. So could you tell us it's something important that investors aren't thinking about right now? It could be a risk, a strategy, a cognitive bias, an opportunity, whatever you like. Oh, that's a, that's a very interesting question. Um, okay, so the, 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 the risk that investors haven't taken into account, this is one that I heard earlier on today, but I, 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 I agree with it entirely, is that we're in the, the, the big long uh, bond market, uh, bull market that we've had for the last 30 years uh, has come to an end. Uh, there's going to be normalization of interest rates everywhere. The implications of that for bond investors are very significant. Uh, I'll give you an example. My Auntie Anne, uh, when she retired from the, as a doctor in the NHS, she put all her money into a bond fund. She thinks she's a financial genius. She's not. Um, and I'm trying to persuade her now that now's the time to sell the bond fund and, and hold it in cash, basically. But bonds look to me universally to be extremely vulnerable as we move into a period of interest rate normalization. And very few people are talking about that. So that's, I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That sounds great. All right, so um, the second last one, if you could go back in time to when you were finishing school or university and give yourself one piece of investing advice, what would it be? Uh, I 
Okay, that's a very good question, Patrick. My greatest regret, I've got plenty of regrets. My greatest regret ever is that I was sent when I was 21 or 22 years old to a technology conference in uh, Palm Springs, not Palm Beach, but Palm Springs in California. And on the flight on the way back, sitting in front of me were Bill Gates and Steve Jobs sitting together, which I think was a very rare event because they didn't like each other very much. If I'd had both the foresight and the guts, I'd have introduced myself and I would be in a very different place today. So that, that's my biggest regret in life. Can certainly understand that one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, final question. If the market was gonna close for the next five years starting from tomorrow and you could only own uh, one investment, what would it be? Well, I'd like to say juvenescence, but it's not really a, an investable asset. Okay, I'll tell you what it would be. It would be gold. And you know, there are lots of nuts out there who've been gold for bullish forever. Uh, I think because of what I was saying about normalization, interest rates and all that sort of stuff, that's a reflection of inflation. And for the last year, I've been banging on about, you know, inflation's back uh, and it's going to come back big time because the precariat, the people who are on low wages in the developed world are now in a stronger pricing position than they have been for a very long time. That inflation is insidious. It's bigger than people think. And gold always benefits in inflationary times. So get your Krugerrands, your uh, Aussie gold nuggets or whatever they're called, sovereigns and um, and sit on top of them for the next five years. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for chatting to us today, Jim. Um, it's been fascinating to hear your thoughts on the science and the investing. Thank you very much, Patrick, for taking the time. Thank you. Well, that's it for another episode of Livewire's Rules of Investing. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, we'll be overseas again, talking with a legend in the world of mining investment, Rick Rule. Mining Journal recently named Rick as one of the most influential people in mining. He was among the top five names who also included President Xi Jinping and Donald Trump. I'm very excited to be sharing this interview with you, so don't miss next week's show. And as always, thanks for listening.